Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. As so often happens, last week, the finishing touches on the podcast, sent it out into the world, and bam, uh, right after the close of business, the FDA drops a word they approved as anubrutinib. And that usually happens, I finish the podcast, and then there's a new drug approved. Uh, so this week, I'm recording this the, the beginning part of the week of Monday the 18th, uh, hoping nothing else comes out, and this will be the only uh, the only thing to talk about. Uh, but for now, we're talking about zanubrutinib, or Brukinza, which was approved by the FDA on November 14th. Uh, and this was an accelerated approval, which means based on response rate, uh, basically, for mantle cell lymphoma in patients after one line of previous treatment. Now, as you can probably already guess by the name zanubrutinib, this is a BTK inhibitor, just like brutinib and acalabrutinib. Uh, now, brutinib and acalabrutinib were also approved uh, in an accel- accelerated approval fashion for mantle cell lymphoma based on overall response rate. Uh, for brutinib, it was a study of 111 patients, and brutinib showed an overall response rate in the second line setting, same here, of 66% with acalabrutinib, same thing, mantle cell lymphoma after one line of treatment, overall response rate 80% with an N of 124. Um, this approval was based off of two studies, one with an N of 86 and one with 32, uh, both of which showed exactly an 84% overall response rate. It's kind of silly to, to compare efficacy when you have you know, three single-arm studies, so we won't do that. Uh, we won't do that here. So as, you know, I'm not, as I'm dancing around, this is a me-too drug, kind of a me-too approval, uh, and a fairly easy hurdle for approval. Um, you know, overall response rate, second line mantle cell lymphoma. None of these patients that, that I can see uh, already received a BTK inhibitor. I'm almost certain it would have been an exclusion criteria for these studies. However, BTK targeting drugs uh, have been pretty successful, uh, especially a brutip. So uh, I think it's a good reason to look at this with, uh, with some detail. So beginning with the basics here, the dose. Interesting, the dosing of this drug. It's 320 milligrams by mouth daily, or 160 by mouth twice a day. So you can take, and it's a 80 milligram capsule dosage form. So take four capsules at once, or two capsules twice a day, uh, without regard for meals. I can't think of another drug, and I'm, there's, I feel like in the back of my brain there's one like that, uh, where the patient basically has the option to take it, you know, like you can take this drug two tablets once in the morning or one tablet twice a day. I can't think of another one where that is in the label, but that is the case for uh, Zanubrutinib. Uh, so it's a, it's a little bit odd, and there appears to be a little bit more bioavailability for doing the four capsules, the 320 once a day compared to 160 BID. And uh, they, when they report the results for AUC to infinity for the two uh, formulations, it's 40, and this is from the package insert, 41% with 320 daily and 37% with 160 BID. Now, when you look at this, right away some questions are not answered here. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is, is one of these better tolerated than the others? Uh, so is you know, 320 uh, once a day better tolerated for some reason than 160 uh, BID? Uh, so that becomes a really nice research question if somebody has a lot of patients uh, you know, that, that they put on zanubrutinib and some do the once a day, some do twice a day. Uh, are, they, are they tolerated the same in both ways? That's an easy thing to look at. Another thing that kind of caught me as I was doing some research, I was able to find the phase one study of the drug from Tam et al., published in Blood this year, 2019. And 
first there's this misleading um, you know concentration time curve um, <clears throat> but they actually have the numbers in here looking at 160 once a day compared to 160 BID. Now 160 BID is a, a labeled dosage uh, regimen but the 160 daily isn't but they do have you know the AUC numbers here for 160 daily compared to 160 BID. Now there are 21 patients, again small numbers, in the 160 BID group. Only four in the 160 daily. So you have four patients taking half the dose uh, essentially, or even a quarter of the dose, really 160 once a day, and then uh, 21 taking uh, you know the labeled dose. And the bioavailability looks the same. It's like 45% almost in both arms in, in, in this phase one study. So they're very similar, which makes you wonder um, why you can take four capsules, four times a dose once a day, or 160 BID and everything is still the same. It's a little, it's interesting and something, I, you know, I'd like to see a, a larger publication of the, of the PK and, and a really smart pharmacokinetic guy or gal to interpret that to see um, if everything uh, looks the way it, it should look, so to speak. Okay, now, as I've alluded to, how this drug works, it's a BTK inhibitor covalently binds to the cysteine residue. Uh, it's like cysteine 41 uh, of the ATP binding pocket for Bruton tyrosine kinase, same as a Brutinib, same as uh, a Calibrutinib. But what is a little bit different here are the relative potencies. Now, uh, a Calibrutinib is kind of built as being more potent for BTK inhibition. Uh, Zenubrutinib looks to be equally potent for BTK, but more selective for BTK, so it has less off-target inhibition. Uh, so, for example, it, with regards to EGFR potency, uh, Zenubrutinib uh, takes a lot more drugs, so it has a higher IC50 to block EGFR. That should mean less diarrhea, and this is about a six to tenfold difference in potency for EGFR. And then TEC, which is one I had never heard of, but has been linked to both atrial fibrillation caused by a brutinib and collagen-mediated bleeding caused by a brutinib. And there's about a 2.4-fold difference between a brutinib and zanubrutinib in potency for TEC which might mean less AFib and less uh, bleeding or bruising. And we'll see what that looks like um, when we look at some of the data here. Now, from a warnings precaution statement, when I see a drug that I'm unfamiliar with, the warnings precautions at the top of the PI is a really great way to get a big picture feel for what are the either very prevalent complications of this drug and problems and what are the very serious things. So there are warnings precaution statements for hemorrhage, infections, cytopenias, secondary primary malignancies, cardiac arrhythmias, and embryo-fetal toxicity. All of those, that's, uh, that is six warning precautions. All of those apply to a calibrutinib with the exception of cardiac arrhythmias. There's no warning statement for cardiac arrhythmias. And then all of those apply to a brutinib. A brutinib also has warnings and precaution statements for both hypertension and tumor lysis syndrome, which are missing here for zanubrutinib. Moving on to looking at the incidence of toxicity. Uh, and this is just looking at the, the, uh, the adverse event data presented in like usually section six of the package insert. And we're just looking at mantle cell lymphoma patients because these are similar studies. They're all second line mantle cell lymphoma receiving a BTK inhibitor, all about 100 patients in each arm. Now, again, this is like an apple to a different kind of apple to like a Honeycrisp versus a Gala. So it's, it's not the best comparison because it's not a direct head-to-head -head comparison. 
but for our purposes, it should hopefully give us an approximation. Are there big differences in toxicity between these agents? Because we can't say there's an efficacy difference. So if you're gonna choose which one to use, do you use a brutinib, which you're familiar with, or is there a good reason potentially to use uh, a different BTK inhibitor? So if we look at diarrhea, Zenubrutinib we thought should have less diarrhea because it does not inhibit EGFR as much as a brutinib. So we see 23% overall diarrhea with Zenubrutinib, less than 1% grade 3.8%, 51% diarrhea with a brutinib, so twice as much diarrhea with a brutinib, 5% of that being grade 3, and then 31% diarrhea with a calibrutinib, 3.2% grade 3. So Zenubrutinib does have what appears to be much less diarrhea than a brutinib and slightly less than a calibrutinib. So that does fit uh, with what we saw from the pharmacodynamics from EGFR inhibition. As far as rash, and I'm going zenubrutinib, abrutinib, acalabrutinib. So 36%, 25%, 18%, no big differences there. As far as upper respiratory tract infections, BTK, it's, you know, it's really important for B cell activity. So you inhibit that, it makes sense you'd see more infections. 39% with abrutinib, upper respiratory tract infections. 34% with abrutinib, and then it's not reported any respiratory tract infections in the acalabrutinib PI. I'm not saying it's 0%. I'm saying the number is not there. But what we do see in all three PIs in the infections um, warning precautions is a percentage and incidence of grade 3 or worse infections. And you see 23% with zanubrutinib, 24% with abrutinib, and 18% with calibrutinib. So pretty similar, around 20% uh, serious infections for all these BTK inhibitors. Moving on to maybe the cardiovascular endpoints, we'll call it. So as far as bruising, 14% with zanubrutinib. 30% with a brutinib and 21% with a calibrutinib. No huge differences there. And the reason bruising is recorded is that's potentially a marker of that, that off-target uh, bleeding risk. But more important would be actual bleeding. And so bleeding for all of these includes, um, you know, petechiae, purpura, and then, you know, active hemorrhage. Um, and zanubrutinib has the same statement that abrutinib does about considering stopping the drug three to seven days before procedures. So bleeding, in quotes, because uh, it doesn't actually mean like overt blood loss, it could just be uh, purpura petechiae, 50% uh, with zanubrutinib, 2% grade 3 39% with abrutinib, 4%, and then 50% with calibrutinib, 2%. So really no differences when you look at the, the, the quote, bleeding rates between these three. And in at least the phase one zanubrutinib studies, uh, it's something like 8% of patients were on antiplatelet agents and about 5% were on anticoagulants. So there were, you know, these were patients who potentially could have been on other drugs that increase the risk of bleeding. That was not an exclusion criteria from what I can see, at least from the phase one study. Hypertension rates, 12% with zanubrutinib versus 12% with abrutinib, uh, not reported were calibrutinib. And you see 3.4% grade 3 hypertension with zanubrutinib versus 5% with abrutinib. We know from post-marketing data and what I presented uh, in a podcast a couple weeks ago, the data from Ohio State, that there's a lot more incident hypertension out there than what was seen in the clinical trials. The same goes for atrial fibrillation in the real world compared to what we see in the clinical trials. So with zanubrutinib, 2% AFib overall versus 9% with abrutinib versus 3% with calibrutinib. Again, all these data come from the PI, but we see in the real world is likely very different in an older and less healthy population. You would expect to see more of that atrial fibrillation and probably more hypertension when these drugs are used in the real world. At least that's what we've seen with abrutinib. Uh, as far as cytopenia is also a warning precaution, there appear to be no big differences in cytopenias. 
um, between the Zanyabrutinib patients, Brutinib, and Acalabrutinib patients when you look at that. Uh, now again, when you look at the data for cytopenias, got to remember a lot can affect the platelet count and the hemoglobin and uh, the neutrophil count, uh, such as you know bone marrow infiltration of their mantle cell lymphoma or prior treatment they received. All of those things could potentially affect how those counts look, especially when you're looking at a study with 100 patients um, with cancer. Those things are uh, prone to maybe some misinterpretation, so maybe best not to, to pay too much attention to that. There are, of course, for zanubrutinib, dose reductions for certain criteria at ANC, platelet count, cytopenias. Um, the dose reduction, by the way, pretty simple. You find the toxicity. If they have that toxicity, you go down from... Uh, you know, like from four a day to three a day to two a day to one a day. That's kind of the dose reduction as you go down. <clears throat> now, all three of these drugs are three or four substrates uh, with relatively short half-lives. Um, you know, calibrutinib has a one-hour half-life. Brutinib is more like four. Zanubrutinib is kind of right in the middle of two. So they all have similar half-lives. Um, Typically, no concerns with renal dosing, um, and as you would expect, there can be drug accumulation and hepatic dysfunction. The abrutinib PI uh, it has the best description of what happens to drug exposure in patients with moderate and severe hepatic dysfunction based on child pew uh, status. Uh, and there appears to be uh, more drug exposure and accumulation with abrutinib and hepatic dysfunction than, than zanubrutinib, but there are dose reductions suggested for that. Uh, the zanubrutinib package insert does a really nice job uh, explicitly showing and recommending a dose reduction for concomitant use of zanubrutinib with both potent and moderate 3A4 inhibitors. So for a potent 3A4 inhibitor, it's a 75% dose reduction from 320 a day to 80 a day. And then for moderate uh, 3A4 inhibitors, the dose would be 80 twice a day of zanubrutinib. Uh, there's some fairly good description of uh, zanubrutinib's effects uh, with other drugs in the PI, which I, which I love to see, of course. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that after uh, we mention what happens with acid gastric acid suppressants. So there's no concerns with zanubrutinib. This is uh, different with acalabrutinib, which has its AUC decreased by about 50% with PPIs. Therefore, the PI for acalabrutinib recommends not to use acalabrutinib with PPIs or H2 blockers. And that is a notable difference compared to zanubrutinib. There's a, a passing comment in vitro that zanubrutinib is a 2B6 inducer, and that probably doesn't mean a whole lot except that this is a BTK inhibiting drug. It's going to be used in B-cell malignancies and the drug cyclophosphamide used in a lot of B-cell malignancies. In fact, the most common first-line treatment for most of these patients was a CHOP-like regimen. And cyclophosphamide, along with iphosphamide, are prodrugs. They need to be bioactivated in the liver to enact a metabolite. The main uh, metabolic route to activate both cyclophosphamide and iphosphamide is 2B6. Uh, which raises questions if down the road you were going to combine, and these studies may be in the works as it is, zanubrutinib with a CHOP-like regimen, as we've kind of seen with some of brutinib studies, is does zanubrutinib uh, induce uh, an increase in metabolism of cyclophosphamide to the extent that you get more or faster uh, accumulation or activation of, of the 4-hydroxycyclophosphamide or 4-hydroxyiphosphamide, those active metabolites, and potentially more toxicity, either more hemorrhagic cystitis because you get uh, faster activation of the active metabolite, and then maybe more acrolyne, maybe more cytopenias. Uh, an interesting thing to look for if those studies uh, would be would be done. Uh, it does not explicitly say that zanubrutinib is a 3A4 inducer or 2C19 inducer, 
but we do see that when zanuritinib is given with midazolam, it decreases the AUC by 47%, which would make it uh, you know, a mild inducer by my calculation. Potentially another complication with a CHOP-like regimen, maybe, you know, if it decreases the AUC of midazolam by about 50%, does it decrease the AUC of, say, vincristine? by 50%, potentially decreasing efficacy. We don't know. And then it decreases omeprazole AUC by 36%, and that's the sign that it's uh, potentially a mild 2C19 inducer. So, you know, what are the take-home points here? Unfortunately, there's no evidence of new activity. Uh, it'd be great if zanubrutinib had been studied in patients after ibrutinib failure, and we saw that it had, you know, um, you know, activity of against a brutinib resistant mantle cell lymphoma. Well, we don't see that. Now, I think you, you could logically say that zanubrutinib may have a role in patients with a brutinib intolerance, especially if it's due to diarrhea, uh, because zanubrutinib does cause quite a bit less diarrhea than a brutinib. Um, although I don't think a lot of patients are stopping a brutinib because of diarrhea. Most patients can tolerate it. Um, and then maybe there are some patients uh, with AFib and that their atrial fibrillation gets so bad that it precludes them from taking a brutinib, they might be someone who could tolerate zanubrutinib. Um, now, it also might be an option if you think back to uh, the podcast about a month or so ago, maybe two months ago, the curious case of a brutinib on Netflix, the patient with mantle cell lymphoma, who'd been on brutinib for many years and developed this weird neuropathy that actually led to uh, almost a paralysis-like state, uh, and he, he could no longer walk, stopped the drug, slowly some uh, some sensation came back off of brutinib. Maybe, you know, if that truly was a brutinib, if you did a neuron host scale, you'd probably get a possible drug interaction score. Maybe zanubrutinib would be something like an option for somebody like that. Uh, and then, of course, we think about the cost here and just kind of, you know, basic things. So it looks like this will be about 13 grand a month, kind of par for the course. Uh, now that's four capsules a day. Uh, brutinib looks to be about 15 grand a month for mantle cell lymphoma. That's one tablet a day. And then calibrutinib looks to be 16, 17,000 a month. That's two capsules a day. So, you know, that's something. And this is, you know, just back of the napkin calculation, so to speak. Uh, but I also think from a take-home point, the fact that, you know, patients have a little bit of a choice. Do you want to take four of these capsules once a day or two capsules twice a day. Uh, that does give the patient a little bit of autonomy, which some may appreciate. And I'll also point out that when Abrutinib first came out, it was multiple capsules a day as well until uh, the pharmaceutics side of the drug company caught up with the, the drug development team and they developed these tablets where it could just be one tablet a day. So that may come down the road as well for Zanubrutinib. And it's gonna be important from a pharmacovigilance standpoint, the real, real world follow-up of zanubrutinib for toxicities, as I mentioned, the, the AFib hypertension rates, uh, you know, the AFib we see in the PI is higher than what we see with zanubrutinib, but in the real world, that AFib rate seems higher, especially in patients that are older and with cardiovascular risk factors. And will we see the same thing with zanubrutinib once it's used in a real world population at a larger scale? Um, outside, you know, the, the relatively healthy patient population um, the patients in clinical trials. And then are we gonna get a head-to-head -head comparison? Um, you know, whether it's in mantle cell lymphoma or, you know, it, 
I hope a cooperative group steps up and does a head-to-head comparison for CLL because it's a very, very prevalent disease state, and it would be really great to have, you know, like a five-year study head-to-head comparison of abrutinib versus another BTK inhibitor. Um, that's what the cardiovascular folks would do with this ACE inhibitor versus that ACE inhibitor probably. Uh, but that may be where we're headed if if not, is we're just going to have, you know, a whole bunch of Me Too TK inhibitors with just minor differences. But that is what we're here for in the Oncofarm world. So thank you for listening to Oncofarm. Uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. Follow the podcast at Pod on both Twitter and IG. Um, rate, review us, like us, all that sort of stuff. Let other people know about the podcast. Word of mouth helps. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.